0: Everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. I just want to say that uh, one of the reasons we love that music is at the beginning of the, sh- of the show is because because it, it, Jen Hamoud just starts dancing. And Jen Hamoud gets us in the mood, if you know what I mean. Okay, thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and we'll read a few next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe. And this way you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. We've got a really fascinating guest today. He is Peter Strzok. Peter Strzok served in the FBI from 1996 to 2018, rising to the deputy of its counterintelligence division. During his career, he worked around the world against national security threats from China, Russia, Iran, Cuba, and others, including countering state-sponsored disinformation, prosecuting acts of economic espionage, and theft of intellectual property and combating the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. Prior to the FBI, he spent four years on active duty in the U.S. Army's 101st Airborne Division. He's an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service, is the New York Times bestselling author of Compromised, Counterintelligence and the Threat of Donald Trump, and he is co-host of the Clean Up on Isle 45 podcast. Peter, welcome into the back room. Thank you. Great to be here, Andy. So I want to get into a bunch of things with you because I think you're a fascinating guy and you've got such an incredible story to continue sharing with people. But I want to just start with more of a macro thing about America today. If you look at Republican, uh, the Republican Congress's continued fealty to Donald Trump, if you look at all the attacks on Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg, who's just trying to do his job and uh, adhere to the rule of law, uphold the rule of law, if you look at the Supreme Court ethics violations, if you look at the the epidemic of gun violence, are we becoming a violent, lawless society? Well, it's a great question. It's a worrying question.
1: I don't know how anybody in America, regardless of party, looks at the four years of the Trump administration, certainly the last days of the Trump administration and an insurrection and everything he has said since, right, that he is running for president, seemingly unopposed. I mean, DeSantis is going backwards. And all the things that he is saying right now, you know, I'll pardon the January 6th insurrection. I will be your retribution. I'm going to create Trump cities. I am going to institute tests for civil servants. I'm going to suspend security clearances for 30,000 people. All these things he's saying and if you believe media reporting, Republicans, mainstream Republicans in back rooms don't agree with this, but they are seemingly unwilling to lift a finger to stop it. And I don't know how you look at all those pronouncements and not believe them. I don't know how you look at all those pronouncements coming from the leading candidate for the Republican nomination and not believe that people are willing to go there. And it they, they, there is a a level of nepotism, of corruption, of violence beneath all of this that is in my mind, in my experience, just antithetical to American democracy, to any democracy, but certainly the American sort of constructed democracy. And it's worrisome. And I don't, we're not, we're not making progress away from that. Almost half of America is content to abide by that. Half of America is content to advance to the general election with a candidate who espouses all of those horrible anti-democratic things. And it isn't, in my mind, Trump is the symptom. He is, you know, harnessing sentiment, whether that is people feeling disenfranchised, whether that is people speaking from a racist motivation or a misogynistic motivation, whatever their motivation is. It isn't Trump at the end of the day that has to be addressed here. What has to be addressed is the 30 million plus individuals in the United States who are going to vote for him, no matter what he says. And we've got to figure, Andy, we've got to figure out how how to address that because that is not; those things are not articulated by the founding fathers in the formation of our nation. And you know, talking about it with you, getting getting the word out, you know, is. At least we can do, but we've got to figure out as a nation what the hell is going on here, and how we how we sit down and have a dialogue, and either fix it or find a way find a way to resolve it, because we're not a
0: huge chunk of the country is not on a democratic path. And well, that's really the interesting point and observation, but it's also the most frustrating one because throughout history we've always had quacks and conspiracy theorists. But they're in a very, very small minority. What we have today is, whether it's 30 million, 40 million, at one point it was, you know, if you look at these election results, it, you know, almost half the country. Normally, if you tell someone the moon is made out of cheese and the earth is flat, you, you get rebuked. Yet, with all the evidence we have, how is it still that people hang on to these conspiracies to protect someone who is... I mean, you cannot script a more guilty individual. Absolutely. And I think,
1: look, there's a there's a very reasonable possibility that Trump is going to be, he's already indicted in New York criminally, that there's a reasonable belief or expectation that he's going to be indicted again in Georgia and or federally, and that he may run for the presidency while under indictment and potentially having been convicted. And I don't think it's going to stop him. So, I, you know, what's what's weird today, I mean, if you go back and, you know, Richard Maddow did a great job with alter kind of bringing back some of the you know with Father Coughlin and some of the sort of authoritarian curious movements within the United States and their reach I think so it's not a new phenomenon, but I do think what is new is the sort of pervasive ability to get to this sort of conspiracy mongering information and disinformation, right? I mean, it's one thing if you were living back in 1925 or 1937 or you know, just after World War II, you could tune into a radio and maybe pick up a show, but it isn't the same thing as like hopping on the internet and finding every last piece of extremist nonsense you might want to find. It is not the same as the reach that, you know, Fox News enjoys and other, you know, more extreme media organizations enjoy getting into the homes of Americans. So this whatever the sense of belief that might have been in the United States for a long time, I think what has changed in the information age is the pervasiveness of it. And to the extent somebody was curious or looking for a fellow traveler down the path to authoritarianism, it is so much easier to find those sympathetic beliefs today than it was 40, 60, 70 years ago. This is, I think, a a new phenomenon that we've really got to
0: find new ways to address. So you you wrote a book called Compromised, Counterintelligence, and the Threat of Donald J. Trump. You have said that Donald Trump is our greatest national security threat. You had called the prior election one of the most or the most important election. It's like deja vu all over again. Are, where are you today with looking at this election coming up in 2024 with the... In, incredible fact that Donald Trump is yet again, the front runner for the GOP nomination. We seem to be headed right down the same path. Are are you of the mindset that this is the most important election? Is, Is this the one that either really pushes aside this threat in a major way for good, or is this the election where we literally sink into authoritarianism?
1: I think it certainly has that potential. I mean, look, I was so worried about 2020 because it was so close. I remain hopeful that 2024 won't be, that people having seen what Trump did, having seen January 6th, having seen all the convictions that are coming with January 6th, and when it actually comes to the election of 2024, that it won't be close, but you know, nothing's guaranteed. I mean, we're all praying for, you know, Biden's health. Mm -hmm. You don't, nobody knows what happens between now and the election. I think, in terms of the, the interest of Trump. I mean, look, when it comes to Trump, you know, <clears throat> I share many, certainly personally, I think, the same sort of ideas of what Trump's impact on our democracy and what he means is kind of the character of our nation and where he's leading it That with many people. But in terms of my professional expertise that I spent 20 years you know, looking and defending the national security of the United States of America, I, you know, I think by far and away Trump remains an extraordinarily dangerous candidate. When you look, you know, the statements he's made about, you know, if if I regain the presidency, I'll solve the war in Ukraine in 24 hours. Well, how are you going to do that? The only way I can see you do that is you tell Ukraine, essentially, you got to go and sit down at the negotiation table, give Russia something. And the stick that you use, because Ukraine doesn't want to do that, the stick that you use to get them there, say, because we're going to cut or reduce your aid and funding. So Trump's willingness to engage in dialogues and negotiations with international actors who clearly have goals inimical to the national security of the United States of America remains. And his sort of odd fascination with everybody from Vladimir Putin to Kim Jong un to, you know, tyrants throughout the world and around the world remains. And I don't see his his disparagement of Europe continues. His questioning of the NATO alliance continues. I don't know how, from a national security perspective, the prospect of Trump in the White House again, we are not faced with yet again, a grave threat to our national security. One, because of what he means to our alliances around the world. Two, his past demonstrated behavior with his willingness to put his own interests ahead of those of the nation in an international security environment. So I do, you know, I I think the risks are extraordinary. I, I pray the 2024 election will not be anywhere as close as
0: 2020, but none of us know. I mean, it's a lifetime between now and the election in November 2020. The conventional wisdom is that on paper, 2024 would be no more beneficial to Trump than 2020, where he lost by 80 or so electoral votes, 8 million popular vote, uh, that a, a matchup between Biden and Trump, post-insurrection, post-indictment, blah, blah, blah. There's no chance this man wins. That's conventional wisdom. But you're talking about running against somebody who is almost 80 years old. You mentioned the health before. I'm sure you talk to the same people or listen to the same people I do, and there's lots of doomsday scenarios out there that Trump gets the nomination, and right around the same time, something happens to Joe Biden, it's either incapacitate him or worse, and Kamala Harris becomes president. You can fill in the blanks on how that may or may not be perceived by some people in this country, especially the racists, and then all of a sudden it's a different ballgame because then there's a path to this man becoming president again, and it's just a reality, a political and logical reality that this guy could be president again, and that's really terrifying. Right. I, I agree with you, and I don't, again, to
1: the point of all of us, you know, certainly me speaking, saying, well, you know, I hope 2024 is not even, not nearly as close as 2020. You know, a lot of people in 2015, when he announced it, oh, you know, kind of is a goofball, he's an extremist, but he, he's never going to, you know, he's never going to navigate the path to become the Republican candidate, let alone get elected if he is. So, you know, there, there is a history of people assuming this isn't a serious issue. This isn't a serious concern. The process will take care of it. And ignoring it at our peril and so you know I I, I hesitate you know I, I look at my sort of sense of like oh it's not going to be close and I, I question where that's coming from and my worry is that you know if I'm feeling it how many other people are feeling it and the general assumption that well there's no way that this guy who's been indicted who is probably facing more indictments who may well be headed to prison there's no way that he's not that he's going to be able to advance to the presidency how why are we saying that why is that the assumption I don't think that's a that is not a reasonable, rational perspective to take when you look at the history of the past six plus years. Mm-hmm. And so I think you know the the my my concern is that there is so much fatigue about Trump, and coupled with the awareness of you know how crazy and reckless and damaging he was, that people are tired. I mean, yeah, he's about to go on CNN for a damn town hall in front of a bunch of, not not a town hall of just random citizens from a city, of Republican or likely Republican voters. So it's not even a neutral, balanced audience. And I don't know, my concern in part is that the media and the general sort of public discourse is so tired of the issue that people either aren't going to address it, or if they do, they're concerned about, well, we, we sound like we've sounded for the past six years. Well, yes, we need to sound like we've sounded for the past six years, because the man is a threat. Because the man did enormous damage to our democracy and the prospect of four more years in the presidency would be far worse and so we've got to keep talking about it and we can't be complacent and we've got to, you know every everybody needs to sit in 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 whatever you know if you want to if you're a republican great i was republican but go you know find a reasonable republican candidate trump
0: is 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 the recipe for just disaster with all that we know from the sexism and misogyny to the racism, the homophobia, transphobia, xenophobia, to what happened during COVID, the insurrection and the big lie and the indictments. How is it that people still see him as the one? Do they really believe he's amazing and just a victim as he claims he is? Or is there something nefarious that's going on, rooted in racism or whatever, that they just don't care? They want to own the libs. Again, in my opinion,
1: I... There, is, there are aspects of all of that going on. I think there are certainly, from the sort of least malign to the very malign, the least malign, I think there are folks who feel disenfranchised by the national political process, who saw in Trump somebody who was willing to speak truth to power, speak his mind, talked like they did, didn't speak in kind of the sort of political non-answers that they believe they heard from most candidates. And that's the best interpretation. I think there's absolutely an element of sort of latent racism going back to before the Civil War that was never, that the Civil War was fought over but was not fixed, that Reconstruction did a huge disservice in many ways in that regard, that we saw throughout the Civil Rights Movement was absolutely present in the United States, that we see today is still present in the United States. I think there is an element of religious extremism. Whether you look at attempts to, you know, redefine women's access to reproductive health care, any number of things that are alive and well that are not, in my opinion, tolerant democratic values, that Trump, those folks who have those beliefs, see a champion in Trump. So you know, I, I think it gets very complicated and very ugly in the sense that if you want to have a national dialogue about what is going on and what is the source of Trump support, some of it is noble, but a whole lot of it is not. A whole lot of it is ugly, unacceptable belief that people will acknowledge behind closed doors. But if you want to sit down and say, Hey, how much of this is because, you know, you're fundamentally at core racist, that you are, Afraid of black or brown or yellow people because you do not think they' are equal to you I, that that is an issue and to have that conversation in a productive open way I we got to do it and I don't
0: know how we get there. Well you're right and that's my main contention is that it's all rooted in racism but what Trump did was pour gasoline on that and now there's a there's a eight alarm fire and it's a, seemingly impossible to put that out. And then you consider the doomsday scenarios that we were talking about a minute ago, and you then layer on top of that this bizarre polling of an unpopularity of Joe Biden, who is probably one of the most successful, productive first-term presidents in our history, who actually kept us from this abyss of authoritarianism, who's at heart a good, decent man. When you think that so many people still worship a monster and so many people can't see the good that biden has done it just makes that landscape even more fertile for for craziness
1: yeah and i do think there is a real concern in my mind about what happens when again assuming we get to an election where it is joe biden facing off against trump that in general most of the time americans will choose to keep the status quo if it's generally good for them i mean you know George W. Bush served two terms. Obama served two terms. It, it is certainly something that, given the option, you know, Trump was an outlier. You know, I think versus Jimmy Carter to not serve consecutive terms. So, you know, there was a real discontent there that I think will will show out. But, like, you know, I, I, I do worry where this goes if he, you know, one, if it's a contentious election, and certainly, you know, I don't know if he is not. Either way, if he is elected, what sort? What some of his more extremist followers feel emboldened and encouraged to do in terms of violence. And on the other hand, if he's not elected, if he's defeated, what those same followers then throw up their hands and say, well, you know, he was, we thought he was doing it. It was another fake robbed election. And so we need to take matters into our own hands. And I think his rhetoric, you know, going down to Waco in the you know, the anniversary of the Branch Davidian standoff, and he shows up on stage, and he's got the damn scenes from the attack on the Capitol playing on the screen behind him with piped-in music from the January 6th choir. You know, all those folks are in pretrial detention because they are not safe to be released into the community while they're waiting on trial, singing songs that are being broadcast to his campaign rally. This is clear. I mean, it is clear what he is both consciously and subconsciously appealing to in his rhetoric, and that's violence. And that is people you know, taking matters into their own hand, disobeying the law in order to advance Trump. So I I don't, that's, that's already part, that was his first campaign event. And that's what he chose to embrace. That set the tone. That is the tone and tenor of what we're going to see for the next whatever we got, 18 months, right? So I, I, I don't, we're, we're not headed into a calm period. Let me, let me put it that way. And I, I worry how far people will feel
0: able to go given the things that Trump has said. Given the verdict yesterday in the Proud Boys case, we have four people, including the, the top dog, Enrique Tarrio, convicted of seditious conspiracy, which is not only rare, it's really serious. Given what you just said and using your experience as, as a G-man, former FBI guy, The person you just cited is spewing that violent rhetoric with all we know, with all we've seen, with all we've heard, with all the video of him at his rallies, all the things he's written about on Truth Social. Is it conceivable that the buck will stop at Enrique Terrio and that Trump will somehow not be uh, indicted and convicted ultimately of of seditious conspiracy when he was the, the mastermind of it all?
1: Yeah, that's a... That's a great question. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I, one thing, the first thing I would say is you are absolutely right what a big deal this was. I mean, these charges are complex. I mean, this is a three-month trial. And you had a jury, a very diligent jury, who took a lot of time to go through all the evidence in a very complicated picture and set of crimes when you have to let, you know, all the elements of the crime where you have to say, okay, you, to be guilty of this, you need to have done one and two and three and four, and you have to have evidence to back it all up. The theory of the case, right, what the government was presenting to the jury was a very complex conspiracy that they proved. And it is unprecedented in our nation's history. And I, I, I would highlight and emphasize your point that this is a huge deal. And your listeners need to understand that this was a big deal and a big win for not just DOJ and the FBI, but a big win for democracy and for the American people turning then to say, you know, is this it? No. And the question in my mind is how, you know, everybody likes saying, I don't like connective tissue because that's a, it just strikes me as a weird analogy. But if this is not the top of the activity, right? There were people, when you look at communications between, you know, Tario and Roger Stone, or this guy named Owen Shoreer who was like Stone's protege, there are communications there on January 6th and before when you look at the people that in other words there is a group above the oath keepers above the proud boys above the January 6th activities when you look at all these war rooms at the Willard Hotel that were set up well in advance of January 6th everybody from you know Roger Stone to Christina Bob to John Eastman to you know Mike Flynn all this cast of characters Rudy Giuliani who were floating around in the environment and cut, Why do you set up something called a war room if you are not expecting war, if you are not trying to do something against the peaceful transfer of power that we've not found the people on the ground, a jury of their peers have found them guilty of doing? So I think certainly I have a, some, I think it's more likely than not that there will be additional higher level charges. What I'm much less certain about is, okay, if you find some of those sort of that, that one layer around Trump it is reasonable to me that you might see Eastman or Stone or Rudy or others indicted, but and Meadows even, but then making that final leap to Trump. I don't know. I mean, these, case, the, the other point is these cases are hard to make. I mean, they, these are not only complex cases, but they're difficult and what we may sit there and what it's always a challenge to me, having seen it from the inside to say, okay, look, we all can look at something in someone and say, this is wrong. They did wrong. This was inappropriate. But then the difference between knowing that and then actually getting to the point where you can go into a courtroom with admissible evidence and prove that the very specific law that they broke with all its elements, you can satisfy that to a unanimous jury beyond a reasonable doubt, each and every one of them, that's a big leap. And the frustration I hear from so many people, particularly those outside of a law enforcement background, is everybody knows that this was wrong. Every reasonable person, every reasonable person can look at Trump and say, absolutely, he encouraged this and he knew that it was going to happen. But the the leap between that to getting into a court of law and proving it is a significant one. And, you know, my belief is that's a good thing because as hard as it is and as much as we might want to see Trump prosecuted we need it to be hard because the flip side of the next Trump presidency where you've got Rudy Giuliani as the attorney general we don't want kangaroo courts rounding up 20,000 Americans and railroading them through the judicial process so you know that that the difficulty in proving charges is in my mind ultimately a positive thing as much as it may be frustrating mm-hmm. so you know that's a long answer to your question do we see this getting to trump i don't know i don't think it's a slam dunk i think it's certainly possible is it is it 50 50 on january 6 i think look i think there is I, in my opinion there is a greater likelihood that trump will face federal charges on classified documents at mar-a-lago that he will face charges on Campaign fundraising, raising shenanigans, where he was, you know, claiming one thing and raising money for something else, you know, potentially for the broad fake elector scheme, and to include Georgia. Then it, I think, that his participation
0: in January sixth is a much more complex. So thing. let's play this out for but a second. All, you, y- you mentioned Rudy, you mentioned Eastman, you mentioned Roger Stone. If they are the ones that are the focus ultimately, and they are facing twenty years, is it likely that they're just going to all? lip and go without him there's no j6 he told us what to do we went ahead and took his marching orders just like the proud boys and the oath keepers we were there because of trump don't you think that's where it's ultimately going to go that that roger stone ain't going to prison for donald trump that rudy giuliani is not going to die in prison for donald trump and that that's how they get him
1: that's what i would hope i mean as an investigator you as a as a prosecutor you always want to you know get enough people particularly those close to criminal conspiracies, aren't naturally going to cooperate. They typically cooperate when they face some sort of adverse impact on their Mm -hmm. life, which is usually their own imprisonment. So, you know, and and that's why I know everybody is frustrated about how long this is taking. I I had some concerns early on about DOJ's pace, but folks also need to understand you you can't do all this at once. You have to build up. Why? Because Enrique Tarrio and Stuart Rhodes are not going to cooperate with you until they're facing jail time. Mm Mm-hmm. And once they're facing jail time, many of them still won't cooperate, but you might get one or two who will. And only at that point, are you probably going to get the evidence then that you need against a Rudy Giuliani or a Roger Stone or a John Eastman to be able to then move up to the point where you go to them and say, Hey, you haven't cooperated in the slightest, but you're facing an indictment now, so maybe cooperate. And so it, you, there is a path you have to take that you can't skip steps. When you're facing people whose every bone is not to want to cooperate with you and not to want to, you know, provide information. So, does that do we get there? That's my hope. I, I would hope some of these, you know, the the several four or five convicted yesterday, the Oath Keepers convicted earlier, that you start seeing some cooperation that then move to that sort of core circle around Trump. But again, you know, to to our the beginning of our conversation. I have every expectation when and if Trump runs. If he is elected, the first thing he does is pardon everybody. Right. So, you know, that 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 prospect of even if you get to the point where you have charges against Stone or Eastman or Rudy, just given the pace and how trials and there's a very real chance right. these trials will be going on or appeals will be going on well
0: into the next presidency. And if that presidency is Donald Trump, Well, that would be the least of our problems, I think, if Yeah well. (laughs) And I also want to point out before I think you're a little optimistic about Rudy Giuliani becoming attorney general under a Trump administration, that would be a best case scenario. I think it would be more like Joe Tacopina or maybe even the Kraken, Sidney Powell. Like that that's what I think we'd really be looking at. Yeah, opinion. I think you're right. I mean, I think, yeah,
1: the parade of horribles that exist out there in terms of what the next administration... And they're already working on it, right? I mean, they, they have all these brain trusts sitting there. They learned Steve Bannon and all the like the, the masterminds behind the first Trump administration. They understood. They wasted first several months of the Trump administration
0: putting loyalists in place. And that, right. you know, again, from, from my... My pillow mind, guy. What's he going to be? He's going to be Secretary of State, right? I want to go back in yeah. time a little bit. When we hear Donald Trump go, Russia, 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 that's because of you. You... Three months before the 2016 (laughs) election, you opened up this investigation into Donald Trump and his aides and the interaction with with Russia and uh, trying to find if there was collusion. I love that you called the case Crossfire Hurricane, which is, of course, the Rolling Stones lyric from Jumpin' Jack Flash. Are you a real big Rolling Stones fan? Yeah,
1: I am. Huge. (laughs) Huge. I had, like, uh, I was playing, is opening it up, I think I had Hot Rocks, I think playing and that song had was either on or it just played and was one of, the, you know, you get for, for cases typically, certainly on the national security side, they're not named after the real thing. You get a code name to make it a little harder to understand what it was and they're, they're two words. And so it was just one of those crossfire hurricane, you know, it became just, I don't know, what is it? Onomatopoetic. I forget the word, but like where something describes what mm-hmm. in fact it is sort of thing. But yeah, I, I just, you know, well, it, it, it came from the stones, came from jumping Jack Flash and huge fan and well it gives uh, us a it, good glimpse into, into your
0: bigger. not just your musical knowledge but your sense of humor. I also wondered if you were sitting around mulling over different tunes because like if you consider how much victimization Trump claims, maybe a better choice might have been sympathy for the devil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't want I don't want to give Trump any credit whatsoever in any
1: of this. Yeah, you know, Red Bull lost his way, all these there there are a ton of things for Trump that, you know, find find a lot of resonance in music. But look, I mean, that was the, you know, going back, I, it, it, it astounds me that there's any debate left in America whatsoever that this was not a real concern. Anybody who can still sit there and put the two words Russia hoax together. I mean, the fact of the matter was th- this was unprecedented. His campaign manager, his foreign policy advisor, his national security advisor all went to jail for lying about their contacts with Russia. And just person after person after person, when you look at these connections, when you look at his son and his son-in-law and campaign managers sitting down in Trump Tower with a bunch of Russians because they expected they were going to get dirt on Hillary Clinton, knowing that they were from the government of Russia, I, you just, you can't make it up. And it truly,
0: without hyperbole, is unprecedented in American presidential history. When you take that this, and you consider that Republicans don't give a shit about that, but they're obsessed with the simple fact that Hunter Biden has a laptop. We're not sure what's in it, but the fact that he has a laptop is making their heads explode. And so Donald Jr. and Eric literally were sitting, as you say, with Russians, maybe plotting to steal an election. That's okay. The laptop, not okay.
1: Yeah, and and look, all these arguments like, well, you know, what what are his foreign business concerns? Does that open him up for, you know, potential coercion or exposure? And does that extend to Biden? Well, look, in general, as a former counterintelligence guy, I am very concerned about any president who might be subject to foreign coercion. So great, let's talk about that, right? Let's talk about Jared's dealings with the Saudis. Let's talk about Jared getting 2-3 billion whatever it was from the Saudis at the end of the administration for his little half-assed you know, investment firm that even Saudi financial advisors were telling themselves internally, don't do this. This is too much of a risk. We don't know anything about this guy. Don't give him the money. Let's talk about all the, you know, patents that Ivanka got in the PRC. Let's talk about the, you know, the little photo op photos of her holding up a can of Goya beans from the Oval Office. Let's, let's go through all these foreign entanglements. And again, it's a reasonable, a reasonable issue. If you're worried about foreign influence in the United States and on the presidency, great. I am too. So let's look at everybody equally. And guess what? It isn't even close. I mean, we could, we could, we could write half a chapter maybe on Hunter and Burisma and the laptop. We could write a series of novels about Trump and his family. So yes, let's have at it. But mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're, there's obviously no, no interest in that. There's obviously not. It is a political stunt. There is no desire to get to the bottom of what the real threats are here. It's just, you know, an opportunity to, like, say some magic word that nobody really knows what it means. And, oh, the laptop. Oh,
0: what the fuck that <laughs> so, should I swear. Wait, <laughs> you're, what, you're right. You know, what was, the fuck does the laptop mean? I've been asking that since I heard it it's the first time. <laughs> so what's in it? I have a laptop, too. But what's in the laptop? Can you show us what's in the laptop? Um, when you look back on, on Russiagate and you look at the Mueller investigation, you look at the Mueller report you look at Bill Barr and what he did and what he said, what he said about you and what your motivations were. How do you reflect back on that period now? Because a few years gives us the ability to look at things differently, perhaps. Are you really surprised today, more so than you were then, that that literally went nowhere? Is there something that you feel the Mueller report and Mueller himself failed at? Where did it go wrong? Why did that not lead to anything in terms of Trump and his inner circle? Because it did lead to other arrests and convictions? Yeah,
1: that's, again, a good question. I think time does give you a much better ability to look at. And the first thing, personally, it was awful. I mean, it's hard to say in the moment when you're fighting and you're under trauma and you're just trying to get through it and protect everybody and protect your family and protect, you know, your organization to sit there and say, this is awful. And now looking back, it was awful. I mean, it was awful. Personally, it was awful. Professionally, it was awful from an organizational perspective. I think what I, looking back now... Didn't, I don't think I or most people anticipated the ability of Trump to impact DOJ and the FBI as much as he did. I lay a tremendous amount of that at the feet of Bill Barr. I think Sessions was just, a, you know, kind of a, a lackey dummy doing whatever. I mean, and Trump hated him for recusing from Russia. You know, Matt Whitaker, fucking lightweight placeholder. And then, but Bill Barr, a malign, smart individual willing to just absolutely corrupt the Department of Justice. And we saw him doing that with cases, you know, walking back Flynn's conviction, walking back Roger Stone's sentencing. We saw him, you know, deep sixing investigations up in New York against Trump and people around him. We saw him appointing people like John Durham to go after and investigate Trump's enemies. And throughout all of this, this sort of pervasive intimidation of the career employees at. You know, because I'm familiar with it, the FBI and DOJ, I mean, it went on across the government, but the ability to change behavior, even if people don't understand that it was being changed. I mean, we saw it, you know, according to Washington Post and New York Times reporting arguments between the FBI and DOJ about whether or not they should actually get a search warrant to go down to Mar-a-Lago and recover after 18 months of failed negotiations get back this classified information or not. But you you have this organizational fear that has been sort of installed through all of this sort of activity. So I, it, it does surprise me how effective that was. I would have hoped there would have been a little bit more pushback. I was re- disappointed. I thought for sure the Mueller report, certainly volume two with all the acts of obstruction would and and Mueller said in his congressional testimony it was essentially like look this is a roadmap for you for impeachment and this is a if he weren't president we probably would charge him but we can't because he is president and and went right up to the line of literally saying that and to all the people saying well why doesn't he get prosecuted now part of the reason he doesn't get prosecuted now is that bill barr took a look at volume two and he wrote this lengthy memorandum with a couple of his you know close center circle at the OJ. Laying out why he didn't think it was obstruction, why he thought it was all, you know, their flaws and all this. And whether or not you agree with him, any attempt of DOJ to go in after the fact and try and charge Trump with obstructions laid out in the Mueller report, first thing Trump's going to do is pull out this memorandum from the attorney general at the time saying this isn't a prosecutable case. And again, if you're trying to persuade one juror to have a reasonable doubt, just one of them, to
0: have one reasonable doubt, this is a pretty compelling, Mm -hmm. we may disagree with it. And and Barr also attacked and uh, impugned your character and your motivations. He basically said that you kept this investigation open just as a perjury trap for Flynn. As a lay person, I never understood that term, perjury trap. You're either lying or you're not. And so if someone lies, they weren't trapped. They lied. But yet that undermining of your process by the nation's highest law enforcement official it can't be discounted on any conceivable level. Yeah, and not at all. And I mean, you know, kind of from from the sort of micro ground level, I mean, that was part of
1: the reason when we went in and we talked to Flynn and, you know, there the, he told didn't tell us the truth on multiple occasions. We sat there was no trap. We sat there trying to refresh his recollection, read back to him it's the exact phrases he had used in his conversations with the Russians to try and like, you know, okay, you're not telling us the truth. Why aren't you telling us the truth? I mean, you're not saying they are like, are you, are you sure? Are you sure you never said something with this specific phrase, which I know and you know and the Russians know you used? No, no. It doesn't so why did he? That's so the biggest question traps. of all
0: is why would he sit there and continue to lie to you knowing that he knew you all knew he was lying? And, and that is one of the, in my
1: mind, biggest unanswered questions. If you look at literally the last page of the Mueller report. One of the appendices is because Trump, despite saying, oh, I'm going to be cooperative, I'm going to sit down and interview. Of course, he never interviewed. And what they negotiated, again I'm not happy about it, but I was gone by that time, they negotiated, well, we're going to give a list of questions to Trump and he'll fill out answers, which he did. And, you know, 80% of them were crap. At the very end, there were questions about his interaction with Flynn and his knowledge and or direction to Flynn to reach out to the Russians prior to the inauguration and have these conversations. And he just left them all blank. And you go there, pull out the Mueller report, look at the last page, mm-hmm. the, the little attachment, all the questions, just left them blank. Like we sat down like you're at a, some college exam, you know, 10-page <laughs> exam at the, at the final. You go through and you're like, I just don't like these last two pages of questions that I'm not going to answer. <laughs> we, we don't know. We don't know why Flynn did that. We don't know what Donald Trump told him to do. We don't know what Donald Trump knew about reaching out to the Russians. We don't know about whether or not there's any sort of agreement to do this in exchange for perceived assistance or anything else, because Trump never, ever
0: answered that question. Does, does Putin have something on Trump? I, 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 I think the, the,
1: the short answer is I think Putin understands very well how to manipulate Trump to get what he wants. I think as an as a intel guy, I think if you look at the tools and techniques that a professional would use to manipulate somebody to get somebody to do what they wanted, there are a host of ways you can do that, and Trump displays many of those characteristics. I think it is certainly reasonable to believe you know, Trump's behavior, certainly going back decades, when he was in Russia might give rise to situations where, you know, Russia is going to monitor anybody, senior diplomat, senior American businessman, well-known personality, you're going to be monitored if you go into Russia intensively. And given Trump's past alleged behavior, it would not be at all surprising to me if that is, you know, his normal behavior was present in Russia and that Russia has a record of that. Is that the kind of thing that would be the one sole thing like, you know, the D tape or, mm-hmm. or anything like that, that was the one thing that compelled them to do something or not? I, I, I don't know that it is. I think it's much more likely that if you look everything from, again, Trump's fascination with authoritarians and seeing Putin as a strong leader, commands the respect of his people who can snap his fingers and the media says whatever he wants him to say, or he has big parades in, in Moscow on May Day and he does all these things that are admirable. I think that's a vulnerability i think trump's financial interest his desire Mm -hmm. just for money his cheap desire for money is a vulnerability Mm -hmm. his you know susceptibility to flattery is a vulnerability so if i'm putin a former intelligence officer by the way for a long time career intelligence officer trump's an easy mark and i can pick i mean you know i got my toolbox
0: (laughs) i've got four five six tools that I can work on this guy. You know, people like me, we watch movies, but you're an FBI guy, you did this for a living, so you know how this stuff is done. But I do know that if I wanna catch my dog jumping up on the kitchen counter, I could set up a camera and catch him. Well, if Putin really, over those decades, wanted to get something on Trump, to your point, the toolbox seems pretty easy. And Trump seems like the easiest mark, and I think the financial stuff, more than Anything is the dirt that he ultimately has on it. That's just my lay opinion.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think Trump, at the the end of the day, two things motivate Trump. It's his ego and it's money. And I I think, and that was the part of the problem when, you know, he's on the campaign trail saying, I have no business dealings with Russia. Literally at the same time, Michael Cohen's negotiating with the Russians to get Trump to Moscow. So Trump knows that, Cohen knows that, the Russians know that. And so Trump is lying to the entirety of the United States of America. Who knows about it? Well, you know, obviously his folks do. But Putin knows that and the Russians know that. So that's that's all of a sudden you've got, you know, this coercive thing. And, you know, Trump may not be as sophisticated, like, you know, an intelligence operations thinking person, but he understands leverage and he understands coercion. I mean, he, he, he came up in the business world through real estate and through, you know, sort of boxing and sports and sort of promotion type activity. He understands and, you know, Michael Cohen's spoken at length about how he makes what he wants. The things he wants done, he makes it known without saying it. You know, don't write what you can say. Don't say what you can achieve with a nod of the head. So his, and it feels very organized, crimey, but that's Trump's business experience Mm -hmm. about his career. And so this unspoken sort of power structure, I have something on you that's unsaid. You know it. I know it. And so just go along with what we want. We don't need to say any of that we all
0: understand it. Mm-hmm. That's him. right? And that's what exists, in my opinion, between him and Russia. So the last thing I want to uh, get into you with before we end today is Supreme Court ethics. But before before that, I just want to ask you real quick, as a former FBI guy, what do you make of all this Republican talk today about defunding the FBI? Is that just insanity to you? Of course it is, because
1: what are you going to put in this place? I mean, there is no, and, and, and I forget which Republican candidate was there saying, like, well, he went on Chuck Todd, again, to the extent of, you know, mainstream media bringing in these kind of extremist candidates saying, well, I'm going to defund the FBI. And, and Chuck asked him, well, what are you going to replace it with? Well, we just need to get all the old people. And Chuck said, well, you are you want to defund it, but you're just going to replace it with the same thing. Because at the end of the day, you need, there needs to be, a, nobody, I think, even on the Republican side, argues that, well, defund the FBI, but we still need somebody to carry on the national counterterrorism mission. We need somebody to carry on the national counterintelligence mission. We need somebody to look at complex crime, whether that's you know financial institution fraud or stock fraud or whatever, you still need that same entity. So I think it's just become jargon for people who might be actually upholding the law and investigating violations of law, happening to investigate Republicans. When we were investigating, when I was investigating Hillary Clinton, you didn't see anybody on the Republican side talking about defunding the FBI. You know, we're investigating the events surrounding the Democratic candidate for the president of the United States. No worries about defunding the FBI then. So it's, it's, it's
0: parts of BS. So let me ask you your, your thoughts on this barrage of ethics violations coming out of the Supreme court in particular with Clarence Thomas, a little bit with Neil Gorsuch, but in the last 24 hours this bombshell that dropped about Leonard Leo and Ginny Thomas, can we get to a place where the Supreme Court has a code of ethics? We better. And I, what, what so, and both a code of ethics and obviously I think
1: my, the biggest sound. Or criminal, criminal, or a criminal the charges, stuff. perhaps? Or a criminal, potentially. I mean, some of this goes to like, you know, was there any sort of fraud, you know, when these, these payments to Ginny and they're saying like, well, invoice it, but don't reference her, you know, are there, you know, potential wire fraud charges there. I don't, I don't know enough about the facts to be able to, to look at that. But at the end of you know, at, at the core is there needs to be more disclosure. There needs to be more transparency. It is patently obvious that the, the information that exists that gives people a reasonable opinion one way or the other about the justice's interests is not available to the public. And what's so frustrating to me is like everybody, you know, the why doesn't, you know, Dick Durbin is, you know, all these sternly worded, state, sternly worded statements that, well, you know, John Roberts needs to really institute something. Well, why? To sit and continually rely on the court to have to do it for themselves. I think we're past that point. I think it's time, you know, nobody, yes, the Article Three is a separate branch of government. Congress has limited authority over it. But come on, it's time. You can't look at all of this activity, particularly around Thomas, and not say that he shouldn't have recused in more instances than he did. Well, in this Judy Thomas
0: case, in 2011 and 12, she received upwards of $100,000. And at the end of 2012, guess what? There was a landmark voting rights case that came before the Supreme Court. Thomas was the deciding vote in a five to four decision. A plus B equals C because Leonard Leo was behind that case. That was his case in his nonprofit. That he's involved with. So what's the path to get to that code of ethics if it's not the court itself and it's a hard thing to accomplish through Congress?
1: You've got, I think, one, the good news out of all this is that I think a lot of very good investigative journalists are realizing that there's a lot of information in there that is not public and that are going to start digging into this and getting you know, Freedom of Information Act requests and going back and interviewing people. And I suspect more information will come out and that's good. Transparency is a good thing. We need transparency. Transparency will solve a huge chunk of this. And if you can't get right now, and I still don't know that there's enough to get that code of ethics to get like, you know, enhanced disclosure, but more digging and more embarrassing stuff will, won't we'll get it there. And I, you know, to, to the Thomases in particular, I mean, it's crazy, right? Yeah. And, and so yes, Jenny got all these payments and what's interesting is, you know, I just was reading some of the things, Mark, this guy named Mark Paletta, who was a Thomas clerk, and then he went and worked at OMB under the Trump administration. Oh, by the way, happened to be with the Thomases on that, you know, mega yacht extravaganza vacation in Southeast Asia that, you know, ProPublica reported costs, you know, would cost equivalent of half a million dollars. Thomas went on. Guess what? He represented Ginny in her testimony before the January 6th committee. So I, you know, and she's like, oh, well, you know, Clarence is my best friend. We still, we don't talk about what each other is doing. Well, wait a minute though, this guy who's vacationing with him, who clerked for him, who is now his at the forefront of his public defense and all this stuff is representing her specifically about what she was doing and saying in and around January 6th, when she's texting Mark Meadows about, you know, we need to, all all the things, but somehow there's this wall, right? That, that Clarence didn't know a thing about what Jenny was doing or vice versa. And so when those votes go to the Supreme Court about whether or not White House communication should be turned over, the one vote mm-hmm. against it at the Supreme Court is Clarence Thomas. Shocking. Tell, tell me how that- Shocking. Right. Just unbelievable. So hopefully I, I, I would, I think there is a lot more to come. I don't think, it, I mean, more on Thomas, I think more on other justices. Again, this is not, it's not a partisan concern. No. Look at all the justices. If there are things that should have been disclosed that were not, let's see them and let's put procedures in place, whoever you are, whatever your political bent, that if you're on the highest court in the land, you disclose it. They work for us. Yeah, well, they don't get that. They're not they're on not un- they a power unto themselves.
0: Well, they At think the they are. At the end of the
1: day, they serve the American people, just like the president, just like senators, just yeah, like well, Congress.
0: Lifetime appointments, that's, that's the problem. Yeah, it's a good gig if you can get it, right? Yeah. Well, Peter, (laughs) you've been so generous with your time. It was a thrill to have you on. I hope you'll come back again, and uh, thanks again for doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Great to talk. That's Episode 71. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446, email us at backroomandy at gmail.com, or tweet to me at andyostroyd. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. And if you do like the podcast, please follow or subscribe. And you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jen Hamoud, Cricket Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wynn and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, Peter Strzok. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards and we hope you'll join us again next time have a great week